lot of you were asking me to do a video on election postmortem and takeaways. As usual, I've really taken my time on this issue because I think that many of the lessons learned from the 2020 election are only barely making themselves visible now. Any election postmortem that is rushed after election day can only be a quantitative analysis of the numbers, not a qualitative analysis of the broader trends that will take time to reveal themselves. So here are my top 10 things that we learned from the 2020 election, part one, one through five. One, disruption is out, stability is in. Trump's main appeal in 2016 was that he was here to disrupt the Washington status quo. It is no surprise to me that Trump, the real estate developer, was wired to see opportunity as a byproduct of crisis and instability. After all, market sell-offs, strategic bankruptcies, and having the right cash position to capitalize on the calamity of others are all par for the course when you're a Manhattan real estate developer. And when we look back to the art of the deal, we see what is essentially a manifesto of the Trump presidency. Erratic actions will compel your trading partner to take the deal that is offered to them for fear of what unpredictable behavior might come next, especially if you're in the leveraged position. In fact, this is the very same strategy that he would use to renegotiate our trade portfolio across the developed world. Uh, for more on this, see my video on why I voted red this year. This is classic Trump. Flirt with instability to extract concessions. Unfortunately, the one-two punch of a once-in-a-century pandemic, along with mass social unrest and spiraling economic collapse, all combined to create the appearance of an existential threat to humanity. And we all felt it. Mass disruption in the streets, broken windows, rioting, looting, sickness, pandemic, death, isolation, depression, economic collapse, and the loss of meaning as we all retreated to our home, to our home enclaves and lost our routines combined to create conditions where many Americans simply craved stability and a return to normal. But that is not what Trump promised. Trump was sent to Washington to destroy and disrupt. And that is the light in which he saw himself most clearly in. Unfortunately, the events of middle 2020 magnified his inability to bring people together and project the type of soothing and calm and confidence and protection that all people crave from their leader when they are genuinely scared out of their wits. Now, I know that many of you, my Trump-supporting friends might see this and say, well, he could have been a unifier, but the media and the Democrats never gave him a chance. And while that might be true, that simply isn't good enough for me. To give a sports analogy, I don't like to hear excuses from losers. If you lost a fight or a big game, you don't make excuses. You must acknowledge defeat in order to truly learn from it. And at the end of the and at the end of the day, Trump was simply unable to unify and soothe the country in a time of crisis. Uh, just a quick analogy here: the Democrats never learned from from their uh, loss in 2016 and kind of dug their head in the sand and said that you know Trump rigged the election with Russia, and that was equally bad. So I'm not, you know, I think you'll, you'll find me pretty fair down the middle here. Both sides have, have been misbehaving for some time now. So for Trump, however, there's no excuses. End of the story. He was unable to unify and unable to soothe in a time of crisis. He has many admirable traits as a commander-in-chief, not starting a new foreign war being chief among them. But he is simply not the man for the job of unifying the country. Now, for all that Trump talked a big game about draining the swamp and changing things in Washington, it was largely business, business as usual. I can tell you that I personally rolled my eyes as he distanced himself from Steve Bannon and his nationalist populist base in, fervor, in favor of Washington permanent political establishment types like Steve Mnuchin and Reince Priebus. In fact, this points to a larger deficiency in modern Republican politics that everybody seems to be glossing over. And that is that the Republican Party, as currently constructed, is absolutely unable to govern in any meaningful way to implement solutions to our contemporary problems. 
I will say this again because this is really crucial to the larger point here. The Republican Party is not able to offer or pass legislative solutions that speak to the problems of the modern American household. This has been a problem that has plagued the Republican Party for some time now, but this particular historical moment has really magnified the issue. In order to drive the point here, I'd actually like to go back in time and offer a clear example with the Republican attempt to appeal Obamacare. And uh, almost as soon as uh, after he was elected, Trump set upon the, holy, the Republican Holy Grail to repeal Obamacare. Now, typically in any sort of legislative process like this, the folks that you have to get your votes from will lay down their markers for what a new bill must include in order to gain their support. Typically, these markers are collected and mismatched and the bill comes out of the other end that somewhat speaks to the concerns laid out by the various factions whose support you have to rely on. Then, after spinning the Rubik's Cube as much as possible, you come up with a piece of legislation that speaks to your, comp to your competing priorities of the different legislators whose votes you need, and you approach them again with the following materials. Actual language in a bill, and an explanation of how it would improve the lives of the people they are looking out for. An explainer sheet summarizing all of the changes. Support from groups that are aligned with that particular legislator so that they can count on cover for taking a substantially controversial vote. And some sort of a promise of an ongoing commitment, a meeting, a handshake, a deeply personal assurance that the president and the legislators will work together to fix any fallout resulting from the changes so that they are not left holding the bag. Trump didn't do any of this. Instead, he took the negotiations largely to Twitter, and he was derided by much of the mainstream media for his inelegance in the nuances of legislative negotiation. However, the media's desire to simply make fun of Trump as a bumbling baboon careening his way around the delicate legislative negotiations failed to capture the larger fatal flaw that underpinned the inability of the Republican Party to move on health care. The Republican Party, as it stands, simply does not have the ideological capability to pull on the levers of government to create legislative outcomes. Just try it yourself as a thought exercise. Try to solve the medical insurance marketplace for people under the age of 26 with pre-existing conditions without the help of a new government office, a new government program, or a subsidy of some sort. Spoiler alert, it can't be done. For this reason, the Republican Party operates best when it is in the obstructionist minority or as part of a divided government. They don't actually have solutions that speak to the people that are hurting now in American society. And the negotiations, the current negotiations over the, over the COVID relief bill are another example, unfortunately. In short, if you got the money, or if you got it made in the shade, the Republican Party is the party of obstruction, of slowing down government, and preserving the conditions that are favorable to you. If you need help, don't look to the Republicans to create innovative new programs to come to your rescue. The economic libertarian wing of the party that has a strong plurality of votes within the caucus is simply not going to go for it. This is not due to any nefarious reason. It is simply that the economic ideology of the party always goes back to unchecked capitalism and libertarianism. This is just what they truly believe. Um, America is going bankrupt due to predatory medical industry. The answer is less regulation, not more. Most Americans can't afford a two-bedroom apartment in the city they live in on a 40-hour work week and a minimum wage salary. Don't come looking to the government for help. A free and unconstrained marketplace would do a better job of providing for your family than bureaucrats ever could. Again, that's what, you know, roughly what they believe. And while the libertarian economic theory might be appealing as some sort of abstract thought exercise, the truth is that it is demonstrably unable to govern precisely because it is so against the concept of government in the first place. See my other video on why I left the Democratic Party for a list of things that Trump was right about. 
But when it comes to passing legislation, not so much his strong point. So it came to pass with not, largely no coverage of the very real issues underpinning the moral sickness of the Republican Party that the Trump negotiations around health care in 2017 failed and failed pretty spectacularly. The Trump plan was to simply repeal Obamacare but not offer any constructive solutions as to what would come in next to replace it so that 60 million people wouldn't lose their coverage. Once again, that's because there, there's, no, there's no way to get together on these issues for the Republican caucus. The failure of the Trump negotiations around health care was a foreshadowing for the failure of his administration to pass a desperately needed pandemic stimulus bill in 2020 before the election. In other words, you can run as a disruptive insurgent campaign or you can run as an all-is-well incumbent, but you can't do both. The problem with Trump is that he tried to run as, a resurgent, as an insurgent campaign with reform rhetoric as an incumbent, and most Americans simply said, well, what have you done for me lately? When it comes to COVID-19, I think history will show that his mobilization of resources to get vaccines to Americans, dubbed Operation Warp Speed, was a success. However, he and all of Washington were all too comfortable leaving Americans out to dry with no second round of stimulus before the election. I, firm, I firmly believe if Trump would have worn a mask, soothed the country, and provided a second round of stimulus, we'd, we'd probably be looking at another four years of Trump. Two. Uh, this is a big one for me. Trump supporters are not the irredeemably racist, deplorable people that the left makes them out to be. We all remember Hillary Clinton's moment where she said the quiet part out loud. Many of Trump supporters are irredeemably racist or a basket of deplorables, as she called them. It's so funny that after that comment, which can only be described as fighting words, she went on to say that the other half of Trump supporters were simply desperate for change that Democrats must try to understand them too her condescending tone dripping off of every vowel. Gee, I can't imagine why people didn't like her so much. But as a quick aside, I don't think that anybody can seriously claim that one side or the other is more divisive. Both parties have had the daggers out now for quite some time. Now, there is some sort of sickness in the American zeitgeist where the pronouncements of validated liberal thinkers like Hillary Clinton are cited and handed down as talking points to the mainstream media and then that simply becomes the truth to, the large, to a large majority of Americans. A liberal thought leader, in this case Hillary Clinton, says that Trump people are racist. And then smart-looking people on TV, and they always wear glasses, validate and repeat that opinion. CNN makes features on the subject to further reinforce the talking point. Then they bring on intellectuals to provide academic buttressing for their absurd claims. And finally, somebody writes a book on the topic and provides fodder for a second round of validating interviews on the subject to keep the wheel churning. And this way you kind of keep a talking point in the, you know, in the news cycle for longer and longer. This chain reaction of validation and mass media brainwashing is like chum in the water for political wannabes and fake thought leaders at the local level who want nothing more than to piggyback on you know, to piggyback on the news cycle and create a name uh, with this sort of issue. That is to say the effect has its own momentum and is self-rewarding for people that, that pile on. We've all seen these so-called fake thought leaders and public intellectuals ride into our local papers or blogs with their own take on whatever the mass media brainwashing machine is handing down the pipeline, and with good reason. Viewpoints that challenge existing power structures are silenced, and those people are quietly banned from polite society. Now more than ever, the price for dissent is increasingly tied to your livelihood and your ability to provide for your family. But if you put out content that reinforces the existing power structure, you are amplified, validated, 
showered with compliments, labeled as a thought leader, invited to come on shows, connections swell, and you become generally more valuable. We've all seen it, even at the local level. In this case, Hillary's dangerous pronouncement that, tr that the Trump supporters are irredeemably racist followed the same path. She made her stupid, dangerous, bordering on calling for civil war comment, and the Trump campaign lashed out. Then the mainstream media came to her aid to start turning the machine that I just described above to validate her remark. Supposedly neutral journalists began to evaluate her comments in a manner that were friendly to her. CNN would run features about hate at Trump rallies. Public intellectuals from the left would come on the news shows to talk about the racist roots of our country and further buttress Hillary Clinton's claims. Books were written, and we would all see our local political wannabes and posers parrot the same claims at local level in order to socially signal their own, virtual, their own virtue and to reap the social rewards of aligning themselves with what they perceive to be the new power structure. The idea that Trump supporters are racist simply became the talking point. End of story. The fact that the left could see that Trump had a diverse coalition, such as myself, an immigrant from Mexico, and my Japanese-American wife, whose grandparents suffered two years of internment during World War II, did not matter. We were either also racist, some form of race traitors, or simply fools. They did not want to engage on the merits, and so, and so it came to be that we were simply labeled irredeemably racist deplorables. But the truth is that the facts on the ground of the campaign and the election simply don't bear out that reality. People didn't vote for Trump because they're racist. Here are a couple of quick facts that I think better speak to the reality of the 2020 election. The lack of economic relief on a second stimulus package did Trump in. Many former Trump supporters, particularly the high-voting senior bloc, simply made an evaluation that Trump was not delivering for them on economic relief, and they chose a different path. No racism, no hatred, just Trump's not delivering choose a different path. Secondly, and I really think this is this is um, really what did them in, there are now less jobs in the American industrial Midwest than there were when Trump took office. Trump, Trump liked to brag about a renaissance of good-paying manufacturing jobs on his watch, particularly after the passage of his tax cuts, and, he would argue, as a consequence of the trade war with China. The truth, I think, is somewhere in the middle, but nowhere are jobs... But nowhere are jobs in the industrial Midwest to be found. Automation and advanced manufacturing are now so prevalent as to be competing with the low labor costs of China and the other low labor cost areas of the world. Additionally, there are some things you do not want made by hand, such as natural gas turbines or complex flight equipment, advanced automotive such as Tesla. Textiles will continue to be produced in China and the Eastern Hemisphere for some time, but advanced manufacturing will bloom once again in America because the cost of labor is being undercut by automation. Another contributing factor to the return of manufacturing in America is the shale and fracking revolution of the last 15 years. Fracking has allowed America to wean ourselves off of Saudi oil, so much so that we are now a net exporter of oil. That is quite a change in 15 short years. The fracking revolution has also brought American energy prices lower, and when you add in Trump's China tariffs, the mix of labor, energy, and import costs, again, you know, the primary inputs for a business, finally begin to shift in the made in America favor. So what was the problem for Trump? The jobs came back in the wrong areas for him. The industrial Midwest, such as Pennsylvania and the states surrounding the Great Lakes, all continued to suffer manufacturing job losses throughout the Trump years, and certainly during the COVID era. Instead, American Manufacturing 2.0 sprang up in the frontiers of the technologically savvy coastal corridors and the Great Plains which hosted the American fracking boom. 
I'll go over some numbers here shortly, but I always think it's easiest to just see and trust the advice of, of our eyes and our gut. Think of Tesla's plant in Nevada or the oil derricks in Wyoming. Neither of those manufacturing booms did anything for the constituencies in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Michigan that sent Trump to office in 2016. Okay, here are some numbers according to a study by the Economic Innovation Group, a Washington-based think tank. The Mountain West and the energy-rich Great Plains have experienced much faster factory job growth than the Great Plains states that are crucial to Mr. Trump's hopes of winning a second term. Nearly every state west of the Mississippi added manufacturing jobs faster than the national average in 2017 and 2018, the analysis shows. Nearly half of the counties that had more manufacturing employment in 2018 than in 2010 are in the West. Only two of the top 10 counties that added manufacturing jobs in this time period are in the industrial Midwest. Macomb County, Michigan, near Detroit, and Peoria County in western Illinois. Everything else went to blue states. Okay, I think you get the picture. So going back to the original claim that Trump's supporters are a basket of deplorables and irredeemably racist is not true. In 2016, they'd had enough with the globalist agenda of the Clinton, Bush, and Obama years and decided to take a second chance on a brash real estate developer from Manhattan instead. Seeing no change in 2020, and in fact a real-life catastrophizing of the economy due to COVID, they went in another direction again. It's as simple as that. The industrial Midwest is not full of racist deplorables. They switched sides when they saw that Trump failed to deliver on his core promise to the industrial Midwest. Now, of course, you'll never hear this type of analysis from the mainstream media because it's hard work to connect the dots and because nothing sells like driving division, hatred, and crying about racism. CNN and others will simply keep hammering the race issue to drive ratings, but the reality is that most Americans are decent, hardworking people who desperately long to return to normal who need help for their families in a once-in-a-century pandemic, and who were looking for national leadership to bring back the sustained economic prosperity of the post-World post War II era. However, the economic conditions that underpinned our previous eras of nationwide prosperity no longer exist, and as the fourth industrial revolution merges the high-value added sectors of advanced manufacturing, AI, and computer programming, the concentration of wealth into the hands of only a very few winners in our economy will continue, and there will be lots of losers, primarily uneducated white men who are disillusioned, disenfranchised, and armed to the teeth. These are social conditions that are similar to what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq after we were done delivering American-style freedom and democracy to our beloved allies. I think you'll agree with me that this is a very dangerous social situation. In some, I guess I would say, you know, you think these folks are deplorable now. Let them get more desperate, and that's when that's when the violence will really start. I fear, unfortunately. So, you know, to, to really to just recap this point, I think the data bears out that these are not a basket of racist and deplorable people that only view um, the election singularly as an opportunity to cast hate into the ballot box. That's simply not true. Okay, Trump's promise to bring manufacturing back, you know, to some extent he did, but it was in the wrong areas for people that, that voted for him. And so a lot of people just chose a different path. It had nothing to do with race. Three, a return to normal is a return to Trumpism, or worse. As the Biden administration begins to transition into power, the permanent political establishment will work very hard to act as if the Trump presidency never happened and invalidate the cries of help from his base. Never underestimate the ability of the power centers of this country to bring heaven and earth together to preserve the status quo for their, preser for their preferred constituencies. 
In this case, the preferred constituency of the Democratic Party is a professional managerial class in the coastal corridors who, who never came to understand the grievances of the disaffected industrial Midwest. And so we will return to a national economic program of globalization, further displacing job losses in the industrial Midwest and intensifying the wealth gap and unraveling of our social fabric. There will be lots of talk from the government, media, and our, so and our social institutions about returning the country back to normal and ensuring that there is never again a place in American politics for hatred and whatnot. In short, the Democratic Party and the mainstream media will try to sell us on the idea that the Trump administration was some sort of historical anomaly, a national racism-induced fever dream, if you will. Never forget, this is exactly what they did to Bernie as well in 2016, and actually again in 2020. That's its own outrage. The contemporary Democratic Party is like the captain who cried full steam ahead and drove the Titanic into the iceberg. Establishment Democrats will conflate Biden's victory with some sort of mandate for a return to the globalist economic program, and they will continue to stoke the fires of division. Remember, the Trump wing and the Bernie wing of American politics are both out there, and they both feel like they are continually ignored in the discourse of polite American society, and they're pissed. If something is not done to speak to the concerns of these two constituencies, I fear that the next populist who comes around is going to have genuine dictatorial qualities. After all, we know that dictators come around when the population is radicalized. How do populations get radicalized? Well, the political circus and economic hollowing out of the middle class of the 2016 to 2020 cycle is an excellent introductory course. In short, a vast majority of Americans are pissed off, and a simple return to normal isn't going to cut it for them. They were pissed the whole time. Let's take a trip down memory lane to better understand what a twisted nightmare a return to normal would be for most Americans. Prior to the pandemic, most Americans did not have even $400 in the bank for emergencies. This statistic has, of course, only gone downhill since the beginning of the pandemic. The concentration of wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer Americans and the increasing desperation of the American public to provide for their family. As we know, much of the impetus for voting for Trump in the first place was the sense from many Americans that America was in a state of managed decline and at the hands of the wealthy globalist elite who somehow managed to extract personal wealth through the financialization of the decline in American preeminence in the world while everyone, while everyone else took a hike. Finally, I believe that there is a certain type of immorality to go back to normal and pretending that all is well in American society when we are so clearly coming apart at the seams, and I mean this in every sense of the word, economically, socially, spiritually, uh, etc. For this segment, I will lean heavily on the works of Professor Richard Wolff and his generalized critiques of capitalism, and Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960 through 2010. Though I'll just say um, the, the book focuses on white America just because he had to make the demographic sample about somebody, but the trends are... are can be extrapolated for America in general. So uh, don't let that become a code word that, that kind of uh, turns you off from the lessons of the book. While these two citations and these two books may seem lofty and hard to follow, I'll give you a simple Cliff Notes version of what I'm about to say. America is unraveling at the seams and it is immoral to go back to normal. It is deeply, deeply immoral to go back, to, to go back and pretend that everything is all right while your countrymen die, die deaths of despair at alarming rates. Let's start with the social maladies of this country and how the professional managerial class has largely insulated itself from the consequences of the unraveling of our country in the last 50 years. This is because we have abandoned any notion of overarching American cultural values that tied us together. Instead, what we have are cultural enclaves that sort themselves out through age, race, education, occupation, and increasingly geographic region. 
You can see certain suburbs are red, certain suburbs are white, and there's mixed there's mixed racial neighborhoods, but there's very few mixed income neighborhoods in America now. Let me put this another way that might be easier to explain and uh, save me uh, even more prolonged explanation. You remember the TV show Mad Men? The iconic main character, Don Draper, is a big shot advertising executive in New York City from in the 1960s, I believe, maybe the 1950s. This guy was a seriously influential player and a handsomely paid individual. Remember his house or his car? He actually lived in a little, unremarkable suburban neighborhood, probably 1,500 square feet of that. Think of a modest three-bedroom home in a working-class community. One bathroom, maybe two if you're really rich. While it may seem that I'm getting off topic, this is precisely a good metaphor for the unraveling of the American social fabric. You see, back then, if you attained any sort of success, you were, in many ways, expected to stay put and imagine this, lift up the community around you. Look back at the series and how it accurately depicted American life in that era of our development. It was truly a mixed-income neighborhood. I challenge you to drive around your neighborhoods of your respective communities and see if you can identify a mixed-income neighborhood. See, back then, as you grew up, you were, t you were tied to your neighbors, your church, your fraternal organ organizations. And so it was that leaving town after attaining some measure of, su of financial success was in many ways unthinkable. You, you grew roots. You didn't go to some enclave in El Dorado Hills. You didn't go to some wealthy, gated community. You stayed put. After all, you had responsibilities to the people around you. The arc of the last 50 years of American society has been the gradual substitution of our founding values of religiosity, family, work, and voluntary communal association for secularism, education, careerism, and progressive social theory. To give a quick breakdown of just how complete the, break, the unraveling of our social fabric has become, let us consider the following. 1. Less Americans than, than at any point in history are regularly attending church. I'm not a believer myself, but I recognize the tremendous good that church does in, in, our, in our society. And I think that church attendance being down is probably a bad thing for America. If you are 30 years old in America, you are more likely to be living with your parents than with your married spouse. Cohabitation under marriage is at an all-time low. The pool of men who are claiming some form of, of extended unemployment or disability payment for being out of the labor pool has skyrocketed in the last 30 years. It used to be that if you were an able-bodied man without a job, something was seriously wrong. Now it's, I'm not going to say okay, but it's a thing. You know, young men stay home, play video games, collect a check. Finally, there was a tapestry of voluntary associations that were non-governmental and also not of the church that would help weave together our social fabric as a country. I'm talking about the Elks, the Junior League, the Kiwanis Clubs, etc., these are almost anachronisms now. They hardly have a place in our, our, in our society and are largely out of context. Why is that? Now, don't get me wrong. As a recovering progressive, I understand why the old American values have been thrown out by many. As many activists love to say, the good old days weren't so good if you were black, brown, woman, or gay. So the modern secular progressive movement really started as a conglomeration of the aggrieved parties in American society who never had their grievances fully resolved much like we're seeing today. The problems were ignored and they lingered, like an unpaid bill. And the progressive intelligentsia slowly began creating a new American society. Much of this started with the rise of the American university system. It used to be, for example, that people would marry in high school or not long thereafter. 
After the rise of the university system, what began happening is that people who went to college married each other and people who didn't go to college married each other. And so you saw the big fork in the, in the sorting of the American society. People, who went, people with college educations marrying each other, people without college degrees marrying each other, and the class separation that comes from that. Church attendance also gradually declined throughout this time in American history, but the problem is that no overarching set of agreed-upon values came to replace America's largely Christian traditions. As I said before, I understand and deeply sympathize with the grievances of the progressive American movement, but even that is not enough. The problem is that they have introduced some weird form of cultural relativity or intersectionalism, and now America has no shared values and not even $400 in the bank. Half of America sees no return to its former greatness, and the other half doesn't understand why everyone's so upset. These problems are not going away, and the underlying conditions of the American temper tantrum that led to the election of Donald Trump and our flirtations with Bernie Sanders will not be cured during a, Bi during a Biden administration. As we look forward to 2021, I will ask you to keep track of who is looking to return to normal and who is still pissed. As Lincoln said, a house divided cannot stand. The overarching cultural grievances of the progressive left and of the traditional right have yet to be resolved, and most Americans are living with economic disaster the likes of which we have not seen since the Great Depression, all the while the economic impacts of coronavirus are frankly just getting started. An assumption that we can simply return to normal ignores or is too stupid to understand the economic and cultural disaster that has ripped through the heart of America in the last 50 years. A return to normal, therefore, is immoral, and there will be two forces competing for where we are going next. The secular progressives who want to use coronavirus to leverage changes in our social compact towards a new vision of society, and the traditional right who want nothing more than a good economy, the opportunity to worship with their family, and to be left alone. These are largely incompatible views of America. I predict that Biden will not be a healer, but rather a caretaker. He is simply going to be with us to traverse time and hopefully avert a disaster, not much else. However, the underlying conditions of America's cultural and economic decline continue to persist, and the competing views of America are taking ever more articulated form. They're becoming clearer and clearer which means we are becoming more objectionable, objectionable to each other than ever before, and there is no easier, clean way to resolve these problems and say, boof, back to normal. Don't be sold on it. There's no back to normal. There will be a new normal in politics and in society as we emerge from coronavirus into a Biden presidency. Number four, black and Latino voters can and should be an increasingly competitive voting bloc. This is an interesting point, and I think we can sum this one up without quickly, uh, pretty quickly without having to belabor the point. Many people think that political parties have some sort of overarching ideology. This is not true. Take a look back at my previous video on why I voted red this year. This is to say that many folks have the confused idea that political parties decide their values first and then look at how to win elections and influence policy second. Not true. Backwards. This is sadly mistaken. In fact, the process is exactly the opposite of this. The job of a political party is to raise money and win seats in office, unelected appointments, and increasingly land their operatives in cushy and influential jobs in the media, tech, law, and other highly paid and influential positions. So to be clear, the process is not, here is what we believe, now let's go out and win elections with this worldview. If you think this is a process, you are a white belt in politics. You're the sucker. The process is more something like this. Here are the elected offices that we believe we're competitive to win. 
Here are the constituencies that we know will vote for us no matter what. Ignore them. You know you've got them, so you don't have to do anything for them. Much like blacks and Latinos in the Democratic Party for the last 30 years. It's unfortunate. Here are the people that you know will never vote for you. Ignore them also. You know you will never get them, so you don't have to do anything for them. See how this process naturally drives division? Here are the people who might vote for you or might vote for the other party. This is where the real leverage is. This is where the real competition is in an election. It turns out that in the 2020 presidential race, there was, for once in recent memory, real competition for Latino and black voters in swing states. Trump ran a great program of comparing the grassroots movement we saw on the streets to the socialist dictators that many Latinos fled, such as Cubans and Venezuelans, especially in the key state of Florida. This means that for once in recent memory, the Latino electorate was not automatically baked into the math for one party or another, but rather was in the middle group for whom all the competition is for. So what happens next? Well, if history provides us with any guidance, we know that the Democratic Party will immediately ignore black and Latino constituencies that they used to win, and will continue to take them for granted, unfortunately. Instead of creating policy priorities to mobilize those constituencies towards Democratic side of the ledger, the party will invest in rhetoric and attack ads painting Republicans as irredeemable racists for whom self-respecting people of color simply cannot vote. And so we see the exploitative nature of the relationship of the Democratic Party to the minority communities, which it relies on, frankly. By painting Republicans as irredeemable racists, they are creating a perception that the other option, the Republicans, is literally death, and therefore all the Democrats have to do is be better than death, but not much more. As long as the Democrats can paint the Republicans as an entirely unacceptable option for minorities, then they can continue to take their votes without actually producing the results for them. This is brainwashing and exploitation at its highest levels. However, the Republicans will do their own postmortem on the election and realize that there is now a viable black and brown coalition that they can cater to in order to win elections. This is going to be tremendously empowering for the black and brown communities in America, particularly in swing states. The Republican case for black and brown votes will look something like this. One, social issues. This one is clear. Black and brown voters, by and large, are not fans of the social program of the Democratic Party. Easy and recent examples off the top of my head are the passage of Proposition 8 in California, which enshrined marriage as, a man, as between a man and a woman in the California Constitution. The key constituency that helped the passage of Proposition 8 were Catholic Hispanics and the black faith community. It can be easy to forget nowadays because 2008 seems like such a long ways away, but the underlying tone of California's and America's minority communities, in my opinion, has not shifted. They still, they still feel that way. Similarly, black and brown communities of faith are not having it when it comes to abortion either. Whether you like it or not, they are guided by deep convictions of faith that it is simply wrong, sometimes even murder. Finally, the recent, Calif the recent California rejection of affirmative action, Proposition 22, should be a clarion call for both sides to realize that the minority vote is firmly up for grabs because they are not a fan of the social program of the Democratic Party. Latinos, Asians, and blacks all clearly voted against affirmative action in California in 2020, and in fact, the proposition was most popular among college-educated whites in the coastal corridors. Hmm, does that seem like it's missing something to you? The social program of the Democratic left is deeply unpopular with, the Amer with America's minority communities. Now, let's combine that with the positive economic developments that these communities saw under Trump, and you start to see a compelling case for why for why minorities might begin to flirt with a Republican Party that stands for cultural conservatism and a revival of working-class jobs, which, frankly, 
minority people hold. If you go to a construction site, there's a lot of black and brown faces. Now, going back to the formula for creating a coalition to win elections, it is not values first, votes second. The way parties work is you look at who's voting for you, who might vote for you, and you serve those constituencies first and foremost with your policy positions and the issues that you prioritize to pursue. That means that the black and brown communities in swing states in particular are now not, no longer going to be baked into the math for either side. And so this means that both sides are going to have to compete for them and hopefully begin driving more, uh, more results for them. Policy, appointments, money. Five, demographics is not destiny. Most of my listeners will know this without any sort of citation required. This is to say that there is simply a narrative or a story out there that as America becomes more racially diverse, so too will votes inevitably follow for the Democratic Party. I believe this to be false. The truth of the matter is that both parties will adjust and adapt as the votes come in from various constituencies in various ways. That is to say that the Republican Party will start to see an increase in black and brown voting for its program, and the Democratic Party will start to see an increased reliance on white and wealthy votes, largely from the coastal corridors. And, true to form, both will begin to service the sectors that they believe are fungible in the race to win the election. What this does is turn the old narrative of an inevitable rise of the democratic supremacy in American politics that is tied to the browning of America on its head. A new Republican Party that emerges from the Trump era may begin to peel off black and brown voters. Remember, the math goes both ways. Up until now, the Democratic program was to win 86 or 97% of the black and brown votes in all jurisdictions. Communities of color defecting to the Republican platform at rates of even 10 to 15% are disastrous when the math of the Democratic coalition assumes 97% loyalty rate just to hold on to power. If the Republican Party can hold on to old coalitions and bring in something like 20% of the minority vote, then the math all across the electorate looks different. And this undercuts the notion that American demographic shift will inevitably lead to rise in democratic politics. Instead, both sides, Democrats and Republicans, are now making serious place for each other's voting bases. Another example is a union hall constituency that is typically Democratic, beginning to flirt with Trump in 2020 as a positive response to his protectionist stance on trade and globalism. So, as the voting blocks that comprise both of the parties change, expect to see the values and policies espoused by both parties begin to change to match that as well. As I've said before, a party is not an, ideo is not an ideology or a guiding set of values. It is a power center that seeks to win elections, appointments, and prestigious jobs within influential organizations. The parties will gradually switch their baseline meaning of their identity in order to reflect the votes and the coalitions that are coming to bear for them. In some, demographics is not destiny. Both parties will surf the wave. Okay, that's my video for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate your engagement. Don't be afraid to hit the subscribe button right down there and maybe drop a comment to join the conversation. Stick around next week also for issues 6 through 10 on election takeaways and broader social trends and political trends that we're going to see in 2021. Thanks again.